Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Digital Dissection podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark. Two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you, so why not write us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. And now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting. You know that idea or that 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 concept that was, was thrown out there that technically like our our radio and TV broadcasts just go out in all directions and they never stop. They just keep going so that somewhere, sometime, eventually, if there's life out there, they will get our broadcasts from early TV and radio. And they'll have no idea that they're fake. What have we actually sent out into space? Did we just did we actually send Gilligan's Island out there? I can't even I mean, remember if we did. Probably. I mean, is it on the gold disc? Did we slap that into Voyager? God, I have no idea. I'll be honest with you, Joe. I'm getting to that age now where finally I, I, I don't remember if if the things I reference now are within five years or thirty. So, <laughs> well, I think you can just safely whatever you do. When you think something happened, multiply it by like eight. And that's when it actually happened. Five years ago, nope, it was 40. Older than both of us. That's bad math because I am not good at math. <laughs> Therefore, we should pick a safer number. This is why Joe, Joe does not teach math for those who I, don't. <laughs> I teach algebra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those poor sons of bitches. They don't doing know it what's wrong happening. on purpose the whole year. <laughs> uh, well, what, what the fuck are these guys talking about tonight? We're talking about Galaxy Quest. Yeah. If, if those of you that uh, didn't quite remember this little ditty back in 1999, and honestly, Joe, what I was actually what I was considering starting with here was, you know, if you're sitting in the IMAX theater, mm-hmm. they, they try to think back to the first time you saw a movie in IMAX. Yes. What kind of thoughts came to you? Like, what were you thinking as you sat there looking at this this massive screen? Jesus Christ, am I actually in a helicopter right now? I think is what I thought when my first time I ever went to an IMAX. Because I saw, I went to a, it was, a, it was a museum in Milwaukee that had an IMAX screening in it. And like they did this like opening thing before what, what, uh, what they showed. And it was literally like a bunch of like random clips of things filmed in IMAX. And one of them was a, a helicopter going over a city and it would, like move and sway and i found like i along with like my classmates they were actually like moving with the damn camera so that's yeah. what i thought I'm like fuck are we are we in a helicopter right now all all 33 of us hanging out hmm. see the first time i saw an imax it was like a uh, an ocean exploration type of thing you ah, know okay like the perspective of a fish type mm-hmm. of thing and i thought man that coral looks delicious but I don't know why more coral. fish are eating it. I don't know why they're not. 
the bright colors reminds you of like cereal, you know, on a Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. But yep. no, no, that what I was referring to with IMAX was actually David Howard who wrote the mm -hmm. screenplay for Galaxy Quest. Because one of the first times he sat down in IMAX, you know, back when it was still flashy and brand new, yeah. he was sitting there coming up with this proto idea slash design mm -hmm. for what Galaxy Quest would be. What do you think he named that idea, Joe? Did he name it? Galaxy Trekkers. Not quite. A little too on the nose, potentially. <laughs> uh, he named it Captain Starshine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, mm -hmm. I could see why that one didn't stick. Yeah, it sounds like some... <laughs> Some strange seventies porno that I want to watch, but I will refrain from doing. Just yeah. doesn't quite land. I mean, it seems like a guy who has a sanctum solarium um, instead of a fortress of solitude, and he's yeah. a little, little creepy, little creepy. He stares at you a little too long. Maybe holds <laughs> the handshake a bit, a bit too much, type of thing. You know? Yeah, like he 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 holds it strong with one hand, and then slowly moves the other arm up your arm. You're just like, I don't, I don't know what's going on anymore. I thought we were just saying hello. <laughs> yes. Oh, I signed on for much more than I bargained for. Apparently, we're getting friendlier than we thought possible tonight. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what Mr. David Howard was was envisioning the first time he went and saw IMAX. He was coming okay. up with this this idea for what would become Galaxy Quest, and. He said specifically that the idea mm -hmm. of having these like washed up sci-fi stars just just popped in there. All right. Know? Just popped in there. Yeah. Like marshmallows at Camp Wakanda. Mm -hmm. Once again, referencing Ghostbusters because we can't seem to not nope. fucking do that for nope. a week. Every episode. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's what he did. And and so this idea of being like pigeonholed Star Trek actors mm -hmm. just just got in there. Started yeah. running wild. Mm -hmm. And. This is something I found really interesting about this. He said once that happened, the idea practically wrote itself. He didn't even really have to get creative. Well, when you think of this movie, like it all feels natural. Like it legitimately feels like if you took the original cast of Star Trek and this happened, this is exactly what would happen. Like, this is just, this is what they would do. You would have um, William Shatner just completely falling in love. Although that would have had to happen to him in his like 30s or 40s because now he's he's been to space and he admitted he hates it. It's all bad. Really? Um, he hated yeah. it that much? Hey, yeah, he didn't like it. <laughs> it's like, no, oh, man. I'm not going back. If he could yelp that, he'd put a review of like two on there. Oh, but, man. But yeah, if this had happened to him in in his prime, or you know, just just beyond his prime, um, same thing. Like we would have gotten this exact same thing happening to the original cast of Star Trek. So it's like Shatner is expecting you know sleep number, but he got a waterbed instead. Mm -hmm. oh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll tell you what. Better reception occurred when this script began getting bounced around Hollywood. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, Mark Johnson would end up getting his hands on this. Now, does Mark Johnson sound familiar to you? I can't say no because his first name is your first name and his last name is rather generic. So I associate him, I'll associate with him no matter what. 
but I, I he's probably done things I'm aware of. I'm just not aware he did it. Well, he is the producer of Rain Man, if you're familiar ah, with that movie. Yeah, yeah. Very it's, solid, uh, Dustin it was, Hoffman. It was the movie that definitely was the first kick in the pants uh, to my hometown that I remember when Tom Cruise declared that Kmart sucks. And that was like our only store that we had in our tiny town. It's like, well, that means my town sucks by association because all we have is a Kmart. Yeah, but Joe, little known secret, the K in Kmart stood for crap, okay? That's true. So It was just ahead of the curve and started with a K to sound cool. <laughs> I, I got to take that back. I did enjoy Kmart mostly <laughs> because a lot of them had Little Caesars in them. And yep. as the you win. know, Joe, someone as crazy as me could only go to one place that had bread that was equally as crazy, mm-hmm. and which is why I love that place. But not a sponsor of the podcast, by not the a sponsor. No. no, and we're not talking about hot and ready's because God damn it. Just, also describes me at any given moment. Just kidding. Not really. <laughs> not at yeah, all. If, if they had a pizza called sweaty and ready, that would be me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway. Okay. All Mr. right. Mr. Mark Johnson, he falls in, he falls in love with this idea mm-hmm. of like you mentioned, Joe, aliens just grabbing this signal, you know, out of space and thinking that it was real, real. the entire time <laughs> which also makes for just one of the best scenes in this whole movie when they they ask if they didn't think gilligan's island actually happened and they just instantly <laughs> those poor yeah. people those poor people yeah <laughs> oh god oh my god <sighs> okay so looking at this then is that when it was first developed and first made uh, not first made, but first being pitched, moved around, the ideas shuffling about, is that we didn't have the director who actually made this movie. Instead, we had the 80s great Harold Ramis himself brought on for the director of this movie. And he was envisioning something very different than what we got. He was thinking more space balls with Star Trek than kind of this... It's hard to even call this a spoof movie because... For as much that you think it spoofs Star Trek, it spoofs much more of the people who were in Star Trek than Star Trek, with a lot of a lot of nods to the genre into the series throughout. But so Ramus had this idea that this was going to be the spoof, and he wanted basically action stars to be comedic instead of having comedians be the action stars, which is what we see in this movie. And I think. That, that actually turns out for the better. Because if you think, Mark, how many action stars really nail comedy well? I mean, right off the top of my head, I, I can't think of many outside of a very specific person named Arnold, last name yeah. Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. That's, that is a really tough one for me to, mm-hmm. to, to get my head wrapped around because it, for the time period, at least. Yeah. Right. Like this is before the rock was really making exactly. some of these, like, mm-hmm. yeah, like r- before he was making these, I don't want to call them self-referential, but like mm-hmm. very self-aware. Aware. Yeah. He knows yeah. what he's doing and he's damn good at it. So he can keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, mm-hmm. this is before that really started. So I think even back then much tougher sell. Yeah, you know, especially, especially because yeah, because okay. look at look at the action stars of the time. Like you said, you got Schwarzenegger there. You, you put Stallone in this as well. <laughs> yeah. No, so that's not going to work. 
yeah, he's good for a one-liner or two, but yeah. you you can't expect him to carry the comedy throughout. No, never give not. up. Yeah, never surrender. It's mm. not going to work. Not going to mm. work well. <laughs> Plus, people thought his dread was lame, and maybe that's the case. So, ah, man, and then I still can't believe how much we actually liked dread when we looked back and watched it again. That's still like. <laughs> boggling me like i fully expected like i love the movie when i was a kid that's because like when you're a kid if it's got flashing lights and cool looking shit you're gonna love it but like i'm gonna hate this watching it again and i didn't hate it i didn't i don't get why i didn't hate it <laughs> I, I mean i think we didn't hate it was because this movie ended up becoming a love letter to you know like original star trek fans the original series and borrowing a bit from buck rogers which was you know long before either of us were sci-fi fans mm -hmm. But I mean, it, they they did. I think that was the better balance because a lot of the rumors and some of the stuff that came out about Ramus being attached to this was that he wanted a dark film. Yeah, you know, like like mm -hmm. why? <laughs> and I, I just can't see that ever possibly being a successful thing for this movie. Oh no, no! And granted, the movie we got is is dramatically different than what was even originally shot. Um, oh yeah, because yeah. the intention for it was shot was different. But we'll get to that in a bit. Um. But like you can even tell from like the original casting ideas that this was going to be a different movie. I mean, I maybe back then more than now because what initially Ramis wanted Alec Baldwin to be Peter Quincy Taggart, which uh, yeah, I can't see him mm -hmm. ever fitting into Peter 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 Quincy 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 Quincy, Quincy, Quincy. Taggart Taggart Taggart. Tag, 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 tag. <laughs> but and even then, like so, eventually, um, there's actually a list of other people that were considered because as we know, Alec Baldwin doesn't get it, but then other names like Kevin Klein gets yeah. thrown into the mix. Bruce Willis. Yeah. Just recently retired, thrown into the mix. Sugar tits himself. Mel Gibson um, mm. is in there. Tim Robbins and Steve Martin, all people who are considered and thought of for this role before Tim Allen signs on. Which is where, Harold Ramis decides to step away from this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he just hated Tim Allen or something, or or maybe he didn't buy into the idea of tool time. Maybe, you know? maybe that was it. Maybe he's like the whole, oh, maybe he did yeah. that. Like <laughs> maybe that he thought, comes out and I lose my mind. I can't do it. Maybe he was a Richard Karn fan. Maybe he thought Al was the real star. You know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, but... Maybe he just really liked Al. Yeah. He really yeah. liked Al. <laughs> but that's that's where he he finally withdraws mm -hmm. and and a lot of people have just made that like clear-cut distinguishing thing that tim allen gets attached mm -hmm. harold ramus is like fuck this shit him out yep. yeah mm -hmm. yeah i don't know what the fuck just happened but i'm getting out of here yep so mm -hmm. I, and, and and it's just it's so strange to me because the cast of this movie as it came together because a lot of it came together once ramus left we got dean yep. parasot who comes in here Mm -hmm. and he fills out you know the rest of the folks that end up being in it and just looking at the cast of this movie if if people haven't seen this film which honestly i just feel bad mm -hmm. for you and oh my god watch it you <sighs> have to watch this movie and, yeah and looking except look at the cast even like as you go through the cast originally another really big name in this movie sigourney weaver i think when she she was interested in the movie when she heard the idea and initially she was told no because they didn't want science fiction actors attached to the movie. Like, we don't want anyone who's like a known science fiction person here. Um, we just don't think it's going to work that way. 
but she insisted, saying that it's the people who are in science fiction that will know the genre and know what's good about it and know what also is good to make fun of about it that you will want to have attached to this movie. Which is, the like, this is why I thought the addition of Alan Rickman was mm-hmm. was amazing for this movie because, for one, Alan Rickman wanted to get away from being typecast as, as villains and yep. you know being pushed mm-hmm. off of Japanese-named towers. And so mm-hmm. what was interesting about him being attached to this was that he immediately fell in love with the humor and he thought this, this script was amazing despite not really being a big sci-fi fan himself. Yeah. And I think what also attracts him to the role is the fact that you've got his character, Alexander Dane, is sick of being typecasted. I mean, part of it. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think what was perfect for this was that when, when he got attached to this movie, very similar to what happens when Sean Connery gets attached to The Last Crusade. Not saying that, because uh, there's a lot of comedy between the two of those movies, right? Mm-hmm. But what he ended up doing in this movie was helping provide a lot of logic as to why actors or some of these uh, characters behave the way they do. Mm-hmm. So he helped build a lot of the things that you end up seeing in this movie because Alan Rickman said a lot that actors kind of have this, this inner dialogue amongst themselves about mm-hmm. how ridiculous the things are happening in front of them and how ridiculous the industry is. And so that that was one of the things I thought he brought to the table here, which was not always well known, but very important. Like he helped provide a lot of logic and reasoning behind why the characters act the way they do. Yeah. And that was something that I think, and as, as our conversation will go on, hit certain points of the movie, I'll bring it more. That's something that the cast was really, really big on, was making sure that this movie worked at every possible level. And actually, like, Believe it or not, Tim Allen was really, really big on making sure that sci-fi elements and parts that work well in science fiction still happened in this movie. Things that weren't written or accounted for initially, he's like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. This, If this were actually a science fiction set, this should happen. Therefore, our actors should think about it as they approach the situation. And then like, he would say this, and the rest of the cast would be like, okay. I've got something that's roll with it. And then they would, they would, they would make the scene and it would come out to some of the best parts of this movie. And one of the, like one of the most like iconic parts of this movie too, which we'll get to um, eventually. But speaking of that, that Tim Allen involvement and his dedication to doing this and his work on it, um, quick little cycle back to Harold Ramis is that Ramis did go and see the movie after it was all said and done and did say that, he was very happy that he was wrong about this movie and that Tim Allen did a great job as uh, Peter Quincy Taggart. Really makes you kind of disappointed that that even, even went down. Mm-hmm. Like just knowing the comedic minds that were involved in this movie, because obviously we mentioned Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver. Uh, she was already a veteran in mm-hmm. the industry at this point. Same goes for Alan Rickman. But then you have folks like Tony Shalhoub, Sam Rockwell, uh, <laughs> Daryl Mitchell. I mean, just the core cast of this movie. Yeah. I just can't believe that they were able to get them together for this. Mm-hmm. And Daryl Mitchell, like, I think he, before this, I think his, his the biggest thing he had was Home Fries, right? Which he worked on. Um, with Parasite. With yeah. Parasite, yeah. 
And other than this, another name I want to throw in there um, is Enrico Colatoni. Oh, of course. Who, if you're not familiar with him, he plays Malthazar in this movie. So he's the he's the head of of our. Um, I was gonna I was gonna literally call them termites instead of thermians. <laughs> like I <laughs> almost like... lost it there for a second, but he's the head <laughs> of the uh, <laughs> of, of the thermians. And also, by the way, um, if you're a Canadian TV fan. He was the head of the uh, the elite police team on Flashpoint, who he starred alongside my childhood crush of Amy Jo Johnson, the original Pink Ranger, <laughs> yeah. throwing that out there. But he did such a good job in his audition for Malthazar that the casting director acts actually did something that's usually a really big no, and that they were like basically hooked on him right away. It's so that when other people went to audition for Thermian parts, they showed the actors Enrico's audition tape and said, this is how Thermians act. This is how you need to portray the role. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how transformative his, mm-hmm. his, his audition was. And I mean, everybody has said this too behind that. Yep. Um, but Hey, I honestly think it's one of the strongest points of the movie, just how strange this alien race behaves because they don't know what we're like, you know, yeah. they, they only know what they've seen in the, in the TV shows or the historical yeah. documents. Right. And, and even like watching them move around is so like when you like something I definitely didn't appreciate when I was younger, cause like watching them walk, you're thinking, Oh, they don't know how to walk. They're trying to be human. How funny. But when you watch them, their hands are always like cupped and kind of moving this weird, like up and down. It's like, it's cause they have tentacles. They don't yeah. know how arms are supposed to work, so they just move like they're rigid tentacles. And like, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> like every like every motion they have, everything they do, that weird like monotone harmonic voice thing that they have, like all of it just like mirrors what they actually are, but poorly trying to disguise it as 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 humanoid looking things. So it's just well thought of, and a lot of like other mannerisms were like thought of as they were filming. So you had people like Tim Allen and Alan Rickman actually comment on how how amazed and slightly frustrated they were to actually work alongside them because like they were coming up with some of the stuff on the fly and they had to act around it. Yeah. Like it was incredible because like, it's well done. It's great. But we didn't see it coming a lot of times. So yeah. we just had to work with it as it came along. Well, this is one of the, the strengths of this movie is that they they dedicated an actual like school. Mm-hmm. to the Thermian actors that you you had to go through this uh, kind of like the Walking Dead does with the zombie behavior that people have to adapt to mm-hmm. all the extras and stuff yeah these people on the Thermian side the alien race they had to go to an actual boot camp for how to behave like Thermians <laughs> that's fantastic I didn't know that yeah yeah so it's just like when you have like a movie about Marines and they all go off to boot camp mm-hmm. you had your Thermian boot camp that's so, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's why that distinct and very unique look exists because mm-hmm. they all they all went through that. So, you know, one of the things about this movie though that does tend to hit these uh, these top ten lists in the mm-hmm. forgotten or you know uh, pop culture that we just didn't quite know a lot yeah. about was the R rated version of this mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. that we talked about a little bit. That there's a lot of different versions. A lot of different iterations and things that changed along the way. So it's kind of a mixture of of hearsay, you know, some of it's myth. Mm-hmm. But according to 
uh, Sigourney Weaver herself, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and Lindsay Collins, who was the producer of the uh, unfortunate box office bomb, John Carter. <laughs> um, oh, John Carter. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, from Weaver herself, she mentions that there is an R-rated director's cut of this movie mm -hmm. that's just chock full of all kinds of sex and adult language. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe it. I mean, even Dara Mitchell, um, even I think he, he said in a documentary about this movie, is he's like it's got to be out there somewhere because we were cussing constantly on set <laughs> and takes yeah. and everything and when you think about it, it does make sense because again the initial plan for this movie isn't what we got the reason why we got the version that we did is because while this movie was in post and they were looking at wrapping it up dreamworks wasn't even sure they're actually going to go forward with it any more than they did past just wrapping they shot it we might test the movie. We might toss it. We, we don't know what we're going to do. And then basically, um, who, I forget the company that made Stuart Little, the movie with the tiny uh, mouse that could talk, voiced yeah. by Michael J. Fox. Well, that was out. And like that's that seemed to like hit out as a family movie. We don't have anything in the slot at this time. We have Galaxy Quest. We could throw that out there in that position and have it compete with Stuart Little. And because that was dream dreamworks idea that, that this was going to now be a family movie they had to edit out so much of what was originally there a lot of alan rickman's apparently a lot of alan rickman scenes had to be cut because of suggestive movement or dialogue or something where he has stuff taken out obviously there's the the very famous scene in the movie with sigourney reaver when they're watching the uh the chompers <laughs> Yeah, but and this, the, the, this episode was badly written. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, but hold on a second. Now there is there, that's that is a mixture of fact and fiction to an extent because mm -hmm. what they ended up doing with that scene and the reason why it looks as strange as it does for folks that have seen this and who haven't, mm -hmm. there's a very distinct part where Sigourney Weaver clearly mouths, "Well, fuck that," <laughs> but it was dubbed over with, "Well, screw that." Mm -hmm. And so it does play into this like R-rated myth, right? Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, Columbia Pictures put out Stuart Little right around yep. the same time, uh, which oddly enough, its screenplay was uh, written by M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, uh, no way. What was the yeah. twist in that movie? Because he wasn't like a real person <laughs> stuck in a mouse's body. I don't know. I don't know. Or it wasn't like we were the mice and he's the human. Eh. That wasn't the thing. I mean, I've heard of stranger things, right? Yeah, weirder things are out there, like how an alien that can jump from rooftop to rooftop gets locked in a fucking old-ass pantry. Can't get out of there. Can't kick the door down. The perfect Bizarre twist. <laughs> well, but the, the, the point here, though, is, as you mentioned, you've got this, this competition with Stuart Little, in a sense, to mm -hmm. out-family the other family movie. So that's what ends up happening. DreamWorks basically tells them, hey, you need to edit these things so that we can keep this PG. And that's where this, according to at least Sigourney Weaver, this is where they redub that line. Yeah. And apparently she even kind of flubbed the direction of what her mouth was supposed to mimic mm -hmm. so that you could really tell this is clearly a fuck that moment and not a screw yeah. that moment. And even Pariso said that he purposely does the dub poorly so you can still clearly see her say fuck. <laughs> he's know. like, he's like the delivery was perfect like it was amazing it was hilarious it was exactly what the movie needed and i was told i couldn't keep it so this was a bit of protest on my part that i just dubbed over it poorly 
and i have to admit like i remember i watched this movie on a field trip i think in like the the eighth grade and i remember seeing that and like wait she did not say screw this <laughs> there's that's not what that's not what her mouth did yeah based on what i know about the english language that is not the sound uh, that that movement makes mm -mm. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh but you mm -hmm. know kind of rounding out some of the uh you know some of the behind the scenes and maybe some of the firsts for this film yeah um this is the first film that justin long and rain wilson that's both true cinematic debuts yeah so uh mm -hmm. for those of you who kind of well if you witnessed any of the early to mid 2000s justin long was practically in everything all the things Kirby yeah. fully loaded dodgeball um yeah. drag me to hell drag me to hell uh, uh accepted. creepers accepted yeah. yep mm -hmm. he was basically like getting sand in your house after you go to the beach <laughs> you just can't get it out you and... he got in there all nice and deep like just like that weird trucker guy wanted him to oh yes get in there <laughs> all nice and deep like yeah yeah and this this mm -hmm. was a pre the office rain wilson yep um and he actually one of the things about him in this movie he mentioned that he was so nervous and there's some uh deleted scenes mm -hmm. in this movie that are still on like the dvd cut uh yeah he was so nervous that he could barely get through half of the stuff he was supposed to do <laughs> seriously which i'm even trying to remember, like how many how many speaking lines does rain wilson have in this movie well he's in the limousine with yep. tim allen you mm -hmm. know in the very beginning yes uh, but apparently he had more lines that were cut yeah yeah mm -hmm. and so and, and the same goes for our friend of the podcast dian bahar yeah by the way because you you see dian and like he's in the background of like they're in the engineering room when they're about to blow um the uh the beryllium sphere you see him just standing there and it's no, he, he also hugs tony shalob once they oh. figure out the the solution to mm -hmm. how to you know fix the beryllium issues which by the way like looking at if we could take a small small sidestep into tony shalob here for a little bit because yeah. this is another like he originally um auditioned for for guy fliegman yeah and didn't get yeah. it lost it to sam rockwell and then was ready to step away from the movie like no 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 no. we want you to come back and and read for read for um read for Quan. and he's like are you serious like this character's name is clearly asian and i'm not asian like this doesn't seem right at all and like no no no, no. like well we used to want you to be in the movie we want you to read for it and he did it and he loved it and again because of like the massive shift in what the movie was supposed to be they had to change a lot of what he was doing um and again like part of part of the reason for like keeping him in there is is that commentary on how like hollywood would just cast white people to be clearly not white people even though like uh shalob is he's a he's, white he, he's lebanese lebanese yeah. yes there we go yeah um but yeah in the opening scene when you see like the original galaxy quest show like you see him squinting like it's a stereotypical bad like asian look but anyway they they read a lot of his humor and a lot of it is just shalob making it up as as he goes along and when it comes to that hug he was specifically told to not do that well, <laughs> and he yeah, did but, it anyway like Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> That's well, but it it really plays into once again this like rewritten vision of what they mm -hmm. wanted him to do for this because initially in this like more darker and more adult version of the of the film, he was supposed to be like a stoner. Yeah, which explains why he's he's got that 
you know, that strange laid back behavior that doesn't mm-hmm. impact him, but it seems to impact everybody else in the movie. Yeah. Right. And like every, like every major thing that should be like, have you think like that was out there or this was really weird. He's just like, Oh, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like when they're they're like, they're getting attacked and they open the airlock and then he just goes, Oh yeah, that, that door was, was a little sticky. I can get my guys up here with a can of WD-40. <laughs> oh my yeah. God, that was so good. Or, <laughs> or when like, again, like when the engine's blowing and like, Hey, yeah, my guys are saying that like you you have to stop doing this. It's, <laughs> it's gonna blow the blow up the ship. You should stop right now. <laughs> just, just not even deadpan. It's not deadpan. It's just like very nonchalant. Like I guess we shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. Or like when they get like sent there on the pods. Initially, he doesn't want to go, and like he finally shows up, and everyone's like freaking out because they just went through space. He's like, yeah, isn't that a thing? Yeah. Um, but also like again the whole idea that he's like I'm not like this is clearly written for someone who should be Asian with this like with this naming Um, that is even like there's a a reference to that where if you remember um, towards the end of the movie and he uh, no not towards the end of the movie um, when he has to use the teleporter for the first time the digitizer um, and like it's not to you you can do it and he panics and freaks the fuck out he's like Quan's not even my real name and he just he's like trying to dodge it it's like oh (laughs) because he didn't think it the part matched for him like it wasn't written like it, it shouldn't be him so just a lot of like really fun subtle things go into that which will we're gonna have to get into like references that are like star trek references and also like other like sneaky references that happen in this movie because there's that one and there's some great ones but there's a great one with sigourney reaver that i can't wait to get to but yeah we'll get to that well, later I, I guess what i'll say up to this point mm-hmm. if you manage to stick with this this long and you're still going what is this movie actually about? Because I think I may have missed it and I'm afraid to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Really what this movie follows is what is envisioned as like the original cast of, let's just say the original Star Trek cast, right? Mm -hmm. But what would happen to them if they just got washed up and they didn't really do anything beyond this, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the cast of of this this film uh, is obviously part of a fictional universe called galaxy quest which is a tv show in the 1980s and we end up seeing their lives after that initial heyday mm-hmm. i think i think in the movie the the show only lasted was it like one season or two yeah, seasons. It, like one, it went from 80 to 82 was yeah its, was its run mm-hmm. yeah so it's a short-lived sci-fi series very similar to star trek the original yep. series mm-hmm. so you get to kind of see what happens to these actors from the height of their careers and then seeing what they've done since then, yeah, which is uh, mm-hmm. depressing and <laughs> very sad to follow. <laughs> um, yeah, and they they show this, and this is where again, like I said, the movie is more of a more of a spoof of the actors and actresses that were in Star Trek than Star Trek itself, because when we first like actually see the crew doing things, they're at a con- they're at a convention, like a basically a Star Trek convention, yeah, and you've got the cast waiting to go on stage and we have everyone there except for Peter Taggart. He's, he's not there because uh, he is the William Shatner of the movie and everything's about him. He's always on his own time schedule and they play a lot off of all of the rumors and mannerisms that were told about William Shatner while he was in Star Trek behind the scenes. So they really try to ham that up uh, with his character in this. 
So you've got all of the other characters who are kind of like, like they, they're complaining about how like Peter booked another event without them. So you clearly see people just wanting the commander or they just want the captain and the rest of the crew just kind of gets forgotten about. And they're booking these smaller gig after smaller gig and, yeah. and they're complaining. So we go into the con and we really get to see a good amount of character development happen in this small scene or in these small couple scenes with the other actors. Cause you've got, um, you've got Tommy Darrow Mitchell who is, enthusiastic but also realistic about this whole thing like i'm just making I'm, this is how i'm making money now um and i should just kind of like work off of this while i have it you and then you've got um he work out while i have it but he's also not happy about it i should say that, that this is as far as his career's gotten um yeah and then of course you've got alan rickman who is in the middle of like basically a freak out or a panic attack yeah, uh, yeah. That he used to be a real actor and he uh was it cambridge he was a cambridge trained actor well yeah he was in and his background in this was uh mimicking that of his own career mm -hmm. in a sense because he was very well known as a theater actor uh and and so he kind of brought that to this role like his his character also was a, a player of the stage at one point mm -hmm. uh was he played uh king richard III, I yes. believe. <laughs> that sounds right yeah so he was he's clearly kind of mixing uh this character with his real life inspiration <laughs> mm -hmm. but once again that is rickman in like inserting reason where a script may not always have it right yes um mm -hmm. so yeah yeah this idea that he was this decorated and well-known respected actor is now he's this is reduced to this <laughs> yes yes <laughs> yeah well it just it just reminds you of just how real these things were for the original mm -hmm. Star Trek actors, right? Yeah. And it, it's not that they ended up being what this cast ended up being, you know, in this portrayal. Mm -hmm. But it definitely played out the dynamic of what happened, um, you know, between Shatner and the rest of the cast. Mm -hmm. And so they really did play that up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, makes it feel more real, honestly. Completely. And then you had, um, like, especially with Sigourney Weaver's character, and how basically when you look at a lot of the early female characters in Star Trek, I don't want to say early, it was a, a lot of Star Trek female characters. They're like basically forced into these form-fitting uniforms. And some of them aren't even uniforms. Um, I remember, what was it, Deanna didn't get an actual uniform in The Next Generation until like, what, season seven? Yeah. Where she like literally the last season of the show, she gets to stop being draped in velvet for entire time on screen but yeah. um weaver makes a comment on how like uh at least the thing she says to Tommy, like you know at least you had a part where people actually ask you about what you're doing because i just got a six paragraph interview about how my boo how, how big my boobs are and how they fit into my uniform oh. which is apparently something that actually happened to jerry ryan yes seven um, of nine mm -hmm. yep yeah that's and, exactly what happened to her it's like a six paragraph thing just about how yeah, her boobs fit in the suit there which is ridiculous like are you kidding like that's what you focus on this whole time you're talking to her she gets like i mean jerry ryan also fantastic actress gets reduced to that in an editorial but like this is also something that just happens to basically it feels like every female on star trek or sci-fi in general is they basically just kind of exploit them for their looks which is a downside to the genre or a constant criticism to the genre and this movie calls it out. It calls this movie calls it out in a in a comedic manner. 
And that's what I found so interesting about this movie. Cause you got to remember, we've said it a couple of times now, this is 1999. Like this is, this is a good, mm -hmm. I'd say maybe 10, 15 years before like comic cons are just pandemonium. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like at that point, like E3 was like the big thing and that's for video games. Right. Yeah. So Which, this wasn't, yeah, it wasn't even huge yet. Mm -hmm. So that's for them to nail like con culture and, mm -hmm. and, and just where it was going to go. That was an incredible it was. Uh, call your shot. Futuristic. <laughs> and that's really, I think this is more like satire than it is spoof. Like this definitely, again, this is not like you don't get Darth helmet in this movie and like his equivalent of like a, of a star Trek villain. We don't have some sort of weird Klingon or Romulan up there. We get, we get Saris, who is a well, like fleshed out villain, and everything else is commentary on the genre and this genre and the subcultures that the genre has spawned. So it is deceptively smart for what the movie actually is. Or like, I, would, I, I, would I, agree. I, I take it back. It's deceptively smart because that that's what the movie is. I don't say for what it actually is. That is what it actually is. It was deceptively smart. And it's a deceptively sort of comedy that got passed off as a family movie. Which once again, this, this movie went through mm -hmm. so many revisions and, and changes. Um, what you're left with is, is surprisingly on point, right? Mm -hmm. Is, I mean, whenever you see movies go through that many changes, it, it tends to come through in a less than flattering light. Yeah. <laughs> and and speak, speaking of less than flattering light, it is in this con scene you get when this is convention you get a scene where peter goes to the bathroom and he overhears two people who are just at the convention center and are a part of the whole thing and they're talking about like you know everyone in there's a loser they're nerds they're taking this stuff way too seriously the show's been off the air for years all these actors are washed up and how pathetic is it that peter taggart eats it up and absolutely loves being there yeah. when it's nothing but losers upon losers and this was something that actually happened to william shatner yeah and made its way into the movie which i think is also a good time to talk about the many shatnerisms that made its way into this movie <laughs> well I, I think i know of one right away that was one of my favorites is when uh, he's fighting the rock monster and his shirt just magically comes, comes off. off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see you've managed to lose your shirt again. Because <laughs> if you watch the original mm -hmm. Star Trek, it doesn't matter what fight this dude is in. His shirt's just gone. Off. It's gone. It just melts away. I think I remember even like one episode, he like got punched in the face and suddenly like his shoulder like just gets, the fabric just rips. It's gone. It's like he didn't even get a hit there. It was a guy with a bare fist. He didn't have a weapon. Didn't have claws. He just got punched. And so his shirt's just ripped open. Like that's not how any of this works. But yeah. it would happen all the time. Or like shortly before that, he does the combat role when going from spot to spot and everyone else is just walking behind him. <laughs> it's the combat. Did that role. help? Yeah, it helped. Where's your gun? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, one of the subtle um, Shatnerisms in this movie uh, is when you actually see the the 1980s crew. Mm -hmm. And when he's sitting there in the captain's chair, he's got that very iconic Shatner yeah. look where he's got the, mm -hmm. the hand to the chin and, you know, got to decide what my, my tactics are here. 
Exactly. And then there are off-screen Shatnerism references, like when you called uh when he was called the scene stealing hack. Yes. Um uh that's because you have a lot of things that William Shatner did like off camera that of course you just don't see necessarily, where he was known for demanding like ex- additional takes to scenes when he thought that he was being upstaged by someone else. So that yeah. way he could basically outdo them. Or yeah. he would order rewrites specifically for his character if he didn't like what was happening. Um, well, yeah, yeah. He specifically mm-hmm. took took all kinds of stuff away from George Takei, uh, which I mean, he he's gone on record stating that too that a lot of his character kind of suffered because of that. Um, mm-hmm. And and I I'm pretty sure that's specifically where the scene stealing hack line yep. comes from. Um, and and we're talking about a guy here that. I'm not trying to say he's a bad person, but this is a guy that was just so put off with having his character die in the movie Generations. Oh my God. <laughs> that he wrote his own series of books called the Shatnerverse, where he and, lived. <laughs> and if you purchase them on Audible, he narrates them. He narrates them all. <laughs> God, the Shatnerverse. Uh, which, yeah. I mean, like, I don't know, like, it's. I think it's fun to hate on Bill. Like, I've met William Shatner. Grant, I met William Shatner, you know, in his late 80s. And, like, I don't know. Fun guy <laughs> from, like, my little experience with him. But, like, I don't want to hate the guy because, like, again, I looked up to, you know, what he did in Star Trek. I loved it, especially the movies. Like, I definitely, like... I don't remember watching much of the original series as a as a as a as a youth. Um, there's something I definitely watched later on in life. But like I remember like watching um Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country when I was younger and loving them both. But so as much as like, you know, I I enjoy Shannon for what he's done, uh yeah, apparently a bit of a monster, or not a monster, but definitely a prima donna to the point where his his co-stars did not care for him very much. Yeah, definitely, definitely mm-hmm. diva behaviors, and which is honestly portrayed uh, quite well, you know, throughout this film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the the core strength of this movie is that you get to see how these characters, you know, behaved before this idea of running into these aliens who thought they were a real thing. Yeah, based off of the signal just floating out into space, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but that's what I kind of love seeing in this movie is how they can go from what seems like a completely irreconcilable, irreconcilable, irreconcilable. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm having a hard time with words tonight, mm-hmm. <laughs> but irreconcilable is the right word. There you go. Yep. Um, that's the one, the, the, these differences, you know, some of the actors from Star Trek have never gotten over, mm-hmm. right? Like they may have been able to, you know, go from boiling to lukewarm on it, but it's still very real. Yeah. You know, whereas in this film, they've kind of uh, righted that a bit. And so mm-hmm. it's really cool to see just how that that works uh, throughout it. Because it, it is such a strange premise, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. a premise that is so weird, but it works so it well. It does so well. And so when we look at that, we look at that core group of actors or that core group of characters movie with um, Taggart, Madison, Tommy, who is the... He was a next gen stereotype with the uh, the boy wonder um sort yes, of thing going absolutely. on. In the original series, Galaxy Quest, he was a kid. Um yeah. Shut up, Wesley. Shut up, Wesley. And then um uh Sir Dane, which by the way, 
he was originally meant to be the references of him being knighted by the by Queen Elizabeth, but then Alan Rickman apparently said it didn't fit the character very well. So basically, every reference to him being knighted is gone, except whenever you see his name printed in the movie, including the credits, he is Sir Alexander Dane in all of them. But anyway, you have that, and then um, and then Fred Kwan. So those are your core group, and then the sixth man. Guy Fleegman, Sam Rockwell. Oh my God, this guy hams it up perfectly for this part. And he's basically the red shirt of the group, is that he <laughs> appears in one episode of the original series. He gets killed in a dramatic, like fashion yeah. of him moving up just, to the camera. Just before the commercial break, of course. <laughs> just before yeah. the commercial, commercial break. Dude, you could not have cast this guy oh, any God, better. No. Mm hmm. I mean, I have loved Sam Rockwell for years. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, like I, I, I may have seen a later Rockwell before I saw Galaxy Quest. So maybe mm -hmm. like three or four years after. Because after this, he wanted to be a serious actor. He wanted to be yeah. more, you know, less comedic and, and kind of mm -hmm. fall into the more of that. But like seeing his talent on full display in yeah. this movie, mm -hmm. um, which in itself is a hilarious reference because Guy Fliegman is an homage to Guy Vardaman. Yeah, it's like an extensive Star Trek uh, stand in or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like one bit role kind of guy. Yeah, and... it was on Next Gen. He had a ton of basically like he'd be like in a scene uh, or he maybe have like a line. You wouldn't hear from a scene very much. He was also uh, a frequent double for Brent Spiner uh, yeah. in the show. So like his character itself was there. And then the fact which is also great is the fact that he is uh, what does he credit himself as it's something that is how um i'm trying to remember exactly what it was worded like oh like he's like the sixth man like that's his that's his designation as, as character in his show i played the sixth man and when yeah. he joins them and says hey i'm coming along too that makes him the sixth member of the crew of characters yes yes because they, had, very nice. because they had five pods ready to go mm -hmm. and then and then he is the the sixth yeah, added to that. <laughs> and you, you also have to love like when the when the, the thermia or the thermians meet the cast and they're in awe of every single person and they get the guy. 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 <laughs> guy. Yeah, which dude, seriously. Oh. Uh, the, the, just that whole exchange between the thermians and the crew, because mm -hmm. you know, at first they do uh try to have that balance of we are actors. You know, we're but we're also trying to fool them into thinking yes. we're real people, mm -hmm. and so they they kind of go with this the whole time. And we're not here to go beat for beat for the whole movie, mm -hmm. but one of the the strongest moments in this film is when they do finally break the news to them. Oh God, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and and when they were writing this, um, they were they were actually uh, told by by the studio maybe don't deliver this the way that you do because we don't need it to be that as heavy. serious as it ends up being <laughs> yeah yeah but but when tim allen delivered it oh my they God. went they went he did that he did that so eloquently and so mm -hmm. perfectly there's no way we can lose this well it's just that every time he opens his mouth in that scene to explain what happens and when you when he has to finally explain when he breaks down the fact that he's finally going to tell um Malthazar what's happening he's being forced to do it 
And when he tries to just say, like, you know, like this was we were acting, and then Sarah says, No, explain it to him as though he were a child. Yeah, speak like, to him as like, if he oh, were a child. Oh, and then and then he they slam him over by him to make it explain. And every time he open Tim Allen opens his mouth after that, you can just like feel the shame in his character for what had been going on the whole time. And we finally see after this whole after the whole movie right, at this point, or most of the movie at this point, is you finally see Peter getting grounded. Like he is now actually, despite all of the insane things that around him, he's now fully grounded in reality at this point. And it took this to happen to him where he legitimately felt bad about everything. Like you could tell, like not only did my God, does he feel bad about like what he's done to the Thermians, but you can tell like he feels bad about how he's been treating his, his former, like his castmates. Everything has finally just come to a head for Taggart at this moment. Which is that's why like these people went from being, you know, non-heroes to being absolute banner heroes. Yeah. And, and that's why um, it's important not to go through it beat to beat because this mm -hmm. is, this is such a highly revered film amongst yeah. Star Trek fans that I mm -hmm. think like in one of these previous uh, fan polls, it was voted as the seventh best Star Trek film <laughs> of all time. I mean, Will Wheaton has said this is his favorite Star Trek movie. Uh, seriously. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a wonderful bit of sci-fi that is, Completely. it's, it's surprisingly under the radar. It is. And Again, like the amount of Star Trek, um, like cast that actually loves this movie. Originally, um, Sir Patrick Stewart himself said he wasn't going to see the movie because he had heard it was me making fun of Star Trek. He's like, I can't do that. Like, I just, I love the property too much. It's too big of my life. I don't think I could do it. And then I think someone finally convinced him to go see the movie and he sees it and he's like, this is brilliant. I'm so happy I saw this movie. This was. Like he loves this movie. It's just so great for how many people, again, it almost feels like a love letter to the people in the industry and to the actors who are in Star Trek because it tells a little bit of their story with a lot of fun sci-fi element to it. Exactly. Yeah, because it's a it's a perfect combination of the realities of the industry while while still telling a compelling story mm -hmm. with that backdrop. And and once again, I, I think that this has that same effect. I know I've said it once again or once before, but it's the same idea of attaching Sean Connery to Indiana Jones mm -hmm. and then having, you know, Alan Rickman attached to this. Like there's so much just actual believable reasoning behind why people behave they do in this film. It is. And um, on that note, too, do you think of like when they first go to land to find um, a new beryllium sphere? Because like we said, they they did blow up the other one. Um they get there and this is one of those moments where like Tim Allen was so dedicated to the idea that this has to also be a good science fiction movie where he's like, wait a second, like in any like science fiction show, they would come to this in like, you know, a space suit or a normal suit and they would test to see if the atmosphere was breathable and they would take the helmet off and they'd go about exploring. And that's where like the director's like, well, like, yeah, like that would happen. But like, that's not like we don't have suits to do that. And but the cast is like, no, 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 we'll, we'll handle it. We'll handle it. So you get the the guy Fliegman freak out like you don't know what's out there. Can you breathe? You don't know. You don't know. Yeah. And then you get um. And then you get Shalub just. It seems breathable. So he just yeah, walks she, out. Yeah, she's breathable. Yeah, <laughs> she's breathable. It's okay. So it's just again like 
all of these little things that make up the genre that the actors and actresses take such good care to make sure it makes its way into this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of things that made their way into this movie, before we get too far away from the antagonist mm -hmm. of the film. So you mentioned the evil warlord, Saris. Yes. Right mm -hmm. now to some people, Saris would just appear to be standard alien. He looks like a reptile, you know, he's got an eye patch, right? Mm -hmm. Which is also in itself a Star Trek reference. And yeah, because of General yeah. Chang. Exactly. Yeah. From Undiscovered Country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Saris ended up being a multi-referential uh, character because yes. Mark Johnson, who we mentioned, the producer, mm -hmm. uh, and then so he, there was a, a film critic named Andrew Saris <laughs> who, who hated the natural. Yes. Absolutely trashed it, just talked all kinds of mad shit on it. Mm -hmm. So how did how did Mark Johnson repay him? He immortalized his evil warlord, Saris. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh that, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So, what we wanted to do was once again, we didn't want to like, tell you the entire film, mm -hmm. but one of the big things about this movie are all the things that we would like you to be able to observe, and maybe you haven't seen it in a while, mm -hmm. or maybe you've never watched it. There are some things that you absolutely need to be on the lookout for. Oh, when you yes. come back to this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Number one, number one being the, what was it, would it be call sign or basically the, the fleet number of the, uh, the protector, the NTE 3120 protector and what NTE actually stands for. Not the Enterprise. Yes, <laughs> just in case uh, they had a lawsuit that could happen against them. They specifically said NTE not the enterprise and when you look at it it's actually a fun reversal of what the enterprise actually is yes because instead of having like that big saucer in front you get those rounded bits for the the rear of the ship yes and then you have like the smooth nacelle is the um is the front of the ship so it's actually a kind of fun like completely flip of it uh and uh unlike the actual enterprise and the bridge where they had to like fantastically fake and flop about uh, when things would happen, the actual set of the bridge did shift and move. So the part where you see them actually like fly and flip over, that's because the set moved. They didn't yeah. have to fake that. Yeah, they they made a fully like functional, movable, uh, yeah, yeah, deck where they could actually fall over and have it look natural than mm -hmm. trying to choreograph 15 people while reacting at the same time. Yeah, thankfully, Daryl <laughs> Mitchell didn't actually break his arm. <laughs> No, no, yeah, and actually, this is this is actually leads into what to watch for next time, uh, because there are very distinct choices, uh, in, in when you see like things in this movie from like the 1980s versus going on to like Sarah's ship mm -hmm. and then being on the protector itself. So, when you look at the, the 1980s uh, look of the show. Because mm -hmm. they, they give you a couple of clips. You see it in the beginning and then you see it referenced. Well, there's like this gray slash blue kind of hue mm -hmm. to the 80s show. So it clearly distinguishes it like, yeah, this is meant to be grainier, yeah. look older, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas that like the the new scenes on the protector, of course, yeah, you like flashy and metallic and all that good stuff. Um, but when you look at the tonal changes, when you look at Saris's ship, it specifically is always like green hued 
and ah. like kind of sickly looking. Ah. And so the next time you watch it, take a look at the lighting because it's very specific. They were they were absolutely deliberate in how they did this. So interesting, definitely a fun thing to check out next time. Yeah, as I say, as much as I as much as I've watched this movie, like I remember definitely picked up on like the blue hue and all the flashback the flashback in the historical document scenes. Yes. I don't think I picked up on the sliminess of Cyrus's ship. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's deliberate. They they've admitted it. It's supposed to look that way. So, <laughs> oh, but one mm-hmm. of my favorite things to look out for in this movie mm-hmm. would be Alexander Dane's headpiece. Yes, Doctor Lazarus is looking like octopus-looking head yep. that he has, mm-hmm. and how it never comes off. It never Not comes for off. One scene, <laughs> just like Dred's helmet, that thing is on the whole time. Well, I mean. Even in the scenes when like they leave the the convention and it's like mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver and Rickman just talking to each other yep, over the from phone, each other's apartments. Yep, he's still wearing he still it. Has it. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole idea from Rickman was that it, it was supposed to look like campy enough so that it was believable as like a set piece, but then also something that he could put on himself when mm-hmm. you know would, not having to rely on like a makeup team to do it. Like that was his reasoning behind this. And so it made sense that he, <laughs> he'd be wearing it outside of the, you be. know, outside of appearances because he could put it on himself. Yeah, very easily. And oh my God, like his, his absolute freak out every time someone says the Grapplar's Hammer line. Yes. Oh my God. The con itself, how he like the first time he hears it, he just quietly yeah. grabs like someone's picture signs that someone starts to say, they get to like, by grab and he just takes the yeah. picture signs it get out of here oh I mean, my god i can't blame him for that though no not at all which again also makes the scene where he says the line himself just another one of those scenes where like does that have any business being as seriously good as it is in this kind of movie oh my god when he breaks down and says by grabthar's hammer by the sons of war yeah you, you shall, shall be, be avenged. avenged. Just oh, like oh my god! Now then, you get to the point where like he's now for the first time really buying into his character, the exact opposite of what uh, Taggart had done in the movie, where he now buys into reality. Yeah. Oh, brilliant! But that that's more character development than mm-hmm. you know, even serious movies. Yeah, yeah. Or I say serious, but you know, like yeah, the ones that I, the Academy wants to recognize. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you just don't see that. And and in that moment, too, the uh, I always forget the Thermian's name. Is it Quiddick? Quiddick. Uh, Quillick. Quillick. When Quillick is like, you know, he's on his deathbed and he's like seeing him deliver that line. He's like, he's like, oh, my God. He's, yep. he's doing, he's doing he's the thing. The line. He's saying the line. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm laughing because I can't believe how good it is. Like, I'm not laughing yeah. at it. I'm like, I'm laughing in disbelief of just how. Like, I can't believe it's that good. I really can't. Like, oh, like the amount of times where this seat pull this movie, this movie pulls a uh, like a monster truck like rally at you. And like you've paid for the whole seat, but you really only need the edge. This is one of those moments. You're just right on the edge of your seat watching this happen. Like, oh, my God, he's going to do it. He's going to say the line. Yeah. He's going to love it. Oh, (laughs) which is why I love the the character of Dr. Lazarus because um it, it's it's not just that he has this ridiculous you know hairdo and everything it's also that he ends up being 
referential to Spock. Mm-hmm. And when they're going to get the Beryllium Spear and they're on this planet, he's holding the tracking device mm-hmm. upside down, <laughs> and he doesn't realize it until he <laughs> he's told this by the others. Mm-hmm. And and Tommy goes, "Man, I thought for a second you were actually you're smart, smart, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and it's it's a mm-hmm. it's a real reference to to yeah to what happened on the set of Star Trek, um, you know when when basically they were using he was using the prop the, the, the wrong way because he didn't know yeah. how to use it yeah no one ever told him there was no direction so he just had it a certain way so it was upside down yeah it was like the first like three or four times he used it it was upside mm-hmm. down no no one knew any different right <laughs> no. mm-hmm. but he yeah and they make a joke of that of course but it's something yeah. to watch for because then you can mm-hmm. you can see it in real time next time from the beginning. <laughs> something else to watch for again um i saw of my favorite references in this movie is actually when they're starting to go through like the underbelly of the ship and they're going through like an air duct and Sigourney Reaver says, why is it always air ducts? (laughs) And if you remember, she was in a very big movie where they had to wander through the air ducts looking for an alien that was trying to kill them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you don't know that movie, there was an alien. trying to kill them and later there would potentially be aliens plural if you're still not getting this one and then eventually there would be an alien three trying to kill (laughs) (laughs) uh you know what i this this tony shalab uh you know like plot line of throwing away this like stoner behavior Mm -hmm. what i always love to tell people to watch out for is almost kind of like what we talked about with beer fest and the you know the perfect drinking pose oh yeah um you know it still remains in the movie well Mm -hmm. this tony shalob stoner plot line we've talked about how it lives through his behavior and how chill he is right Mm -hmm. well it also still exists through the fact that he's got the munchies the entire movie (laughs) he really does yeah oh my god Mm -hmm. so the next time you watch this or watch it for the first time for those of you that haven't seen it he is eating the entire damn movie mm-hmm. everywhere they are he's eating yep and the Absolutely only time hilarious. you don't see him eating is when it's not actually him yeah <laughs> 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 uh, which is another thing another hilarious like i don't know if they did this on purpose we like we said before guy fliegman is the red shirt of the movie and throughout the movie he is constantly afraid that he is about to be killed. He's just yes. paranoid about it. And there's a sequence where Saris shoots multiple people, except for Guy Fleekman. Yep. The only one in that scene not to get shot is the one guy who thought he was going to die the whole movie. I mean, it's pretty funny how, how long that joke exists, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, he, he's on edge. Movie. He's on edge the entire movie. Yep, the entire movie. He's he's afraid he's going to die, <laughs> which is one one of the one of the best parts of this movie is is right near the beginning, when they first get teleported up to the protector, and a lot of people know this one, but uh, not not always. And right when they get transported to the ship and they get beamed up for the first time, uh, the Thermians appear without their you know, their, their appearance generators. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're full on squid. Squiddy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
during this sequence, uh, Guy lets out this very loud and very long scream <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that is unforgettable. Mm-hmm. And apparently no one told Sigourney Weaver that this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so... So the next time you watch this movie and they're mm-hmm. they're in they're in the, the uh, teleportation room for the first time, he lets out this scream and she is like you can just see how jarred she is from it. Yep. Like she physically shakes like, because oh. of how scary it was. <laughs> 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 and and honestly, I find myself rewinding, not even for the reaction, just because of this scream that he lets out. It is <laughs> so funny. And it's oh it's a good, like a 10 second mm-hmm. scream that he lets out. <laughs> yeah. It just goes on and on and on, and apparently no one knew it was coming, especially Sigourney Weaver. Oh, it is so oh, damn funny! My God. Once, once again, just a testament mm-hmm. to how hilarious, uh, just the, the involvement yep. of these characters mm-hmm. are in this film, and that that's one of like the for that, for me that's one of my favorite moments of this movie. Yep. And when you look at like, if you had to like compare Guy Fleegman to an onion or an ogre, because he is very layered in that not only is he a reference to a red shirt in every Star Trek episode? But the fact that um, Rockwell actually based the mannerisms and actions of the character off of one of the Marines from Aliens. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. based off of Hudson. Yes. Over having this very cocky, um, cocky Bill veneer. Paxton. Yeah, Bill Paxton's character. Like, Because when you see him, like he's got his aviators on. He thinks he's cool, shooting the finger guns. He's hitting on that woman in the back, sh- in the back room. Uh, of the of the convention and then you just panic absolute panic the rest of the movie just like hudson does so just oh oh so many references to like so many yeah. great things yeah <laughs> it's it, it is it is totally uh, an homage to game over man yeah <laughs> it totally is oh and well. i would have to say that this is a completely again just like we said with beer fest very underrated movie and a part of it did have to do with the fact that dreamworks wasn't sure what they wanted to do with the movie so it went from meant to be kind of like this pg-13 rated r like satire to a family movie to the point where like they didn't really even advertise it that much i mean you look worldwide the only advertising that was done for outside the United States was that Sigourney Weaver and Tim Allen went to the premiere in, I think, Sydney in Australia. And like that was it. You didn't really see much for marketing. And because of that, you didn't really get a lot of traction for this movie. Granted, like when word caught on, it did, it did actually climb. Like it opened, I think, seventh in its opening weekend, which isn't, you know, Hollywood-wise, not great. Top t- a top 10 finish isn't good unless you're like one or two. Um, so it, that wasn't good. It did have this odd behavior of mm-hmm. of making more money the longer it was out, which just yeah. doesn't it doesn't that doesn't happen. No, and, and then it it crushed in DVD sales too. Yeah, yeah, it it well def- there. It totally had like the Serenity effect or the mm-hmm. Firefly effect. You know, like when once people uh, had heard about this through word of mouth and it already had mm-hmm. left theaters, suddenly that cult following just exploded. And so when we start talking about like the the legacy of this film, to me, what I think is really sad is that if it had come out maybe more recently within the last five or ten years, yeah, I don't think cult is the right word to use behind how no. how revered it is. No, it would be bigger than that. And 
like when I say underrated, it is underrated. Even like you look at this from like a you know sales standpoint, because do you one, do you know what this movie's budget was? Um I do know the budget was around 40 million, give or take. Yeah, 45, 45 yeah. million. It made 90.7 million dollars. So it just doubled its money, just doubled the cost of it. Now, because we love the maths on this program, we love it. Yes, we do. We have to adjust for inflation. And do you know how much money it made by today's standards? So from 1999's worth to buying power in 2022, Joe, feel, just hit me with it. $154.5 million. That's not bad. No, not bad at all. Especially when it had a budget of $68.9 million in today's standard. Not bad at all. They call it a win where I'm from. I, in my book, I'd take that money. Take it every day. <laughs> well, I mean, that's usually the bets that a lot of these, you know, uh, distributors take is that there was really no marketing for this, like we've talked about. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing that it really had was this very strange mockumentary about the making of the film involving yeah. the actors. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they're, they're like telling it from the viewpoint of them having actually been on the show mm -hmm. and retelling it as now it's a movie. Yeah, because it was, was it called um, Never Give Up, Never Surrender? Was that the name of the mockumentary? Or is that the actual documentary? I think that was the one that came out later, which was like 2018. Yeah, yep, that's the actual documentary. Yeah. Um, but so, that, th this is what accompanied, though, the marketing. Mm -hmm. You know, so, oh, if you're, okay, if, so, yeah. if, so if you're watching mm -hmm. this, you know, and you're, you're completely unsure, you didn't, you didn't see any kind of notes or anything preview-wise for this, mm -hmm. and then you see this and you go, the hell is going what on is this yeah <laughs> it's just a completely bizarre. and and so here's the thing even the studio admitted afterward they apologized to the creators of the film they went we totally got this wrong mm -hmm. they said if we if we had somehow done what we did for every film that we backed fully yeah completely different result would have probably happened here we we should not have marketed this as fox's next twisted show oh god we bought we we dropped the ball in this one guys you messed up, A.A. Ron. You just did. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Here, here's where I think would be a good place to kind of leave this one off, though. Okay. We've talked about how some other people, mainly celebrities, mm -hmm. have said that this movie is more Star Trek than Star Trek. Indeed. In terms of his legacy, Joe, do you agree with that assessment? Yes or no? Or rather, um, let's just skip yes or no and leave it an open-ended question. How do you feel about that? I don't think it's... I think it's more Star Trek than some Star Trek, um, but not all Star Trek. I think, I think it's more Star Trek than Star Trek in the same terms that um, the Orville was more Star Trek than Discovery is, or I would say was, because I haven't watched any. I haven't watched the latest of Discovery, and I will say that like the last season I saw was getting better, but it yeah. wasn't enough to sell me on to keep watching. Um, but the first two seasons of the Orville was much more Star Trek, just with dick and fart jokes, um, than the Discovery was. And when you look at this, like at the time, like if you wanted to compare it to like what was out, maybe Star Trek Enterprise was out at the time. Enterprise was very Star Trek. It just wasn't very popular. 
Um, it didn't do very well and debatably had the worst series finale out of any Star Trek made yet. <laughs> but um, I would say it's not more Star Trek than Trek, but it is. I would say it's just as Trek that uh, it's just as Trek as Trek would be a better better way of describing it, in my my opinion. I agree with that assessment because it's hard to watch this movie and go, this was an original idea influenced by nothing. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like so much of Trek or so much of galaxy quest relies on Trek to be successful Mm -hmm. from the, the non-fictional aspects of what the subject matter is based on to what actually happens on a star Trek episode or movie Mm -hmm. and, and still managing to do that with its own little twists and, you know, some of the flair that we've talked about. Yeah. So, well, um, yeah. And I think I agree with you that it's, it's not more Trek than Star Trek, mm-hmm. but it is much more entertaining than some aspects of Star Trek. Oh yeah. I would agree there. Like, it's definitely like, cause sometimes there's definitely like Star Trek gets caught up in itself. Like yeah. sort of thing, like Star Trek's like goal is to show what we could be at our best. If we took the best parts of humanity, took that into space and we tried to forward our species as we interacted with others, sometimes Trek gets caught up in that and gets a little too full of itself on it. Whereas this doesn't take itself seriously, but still has the idea of humanity coming together, over, over um, overcoming our, our shortcomings for the betterment of ourselves and for those we meet. And it does that very well in this movie. Yeah, it's it's much more buffet style of the mm-hmm. topics of Star Trek, right? Because yeah. between the Thermians and like Ceres's, you know, war against them, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're the people of Earth are kind of stepping in yeah. to be diplomatic in a way, mm-hmm. or at least they hoped to be diplomatic in a way, you know. And and so like that that kind of represents some of the politics that you tend to see because that's what the, mm-hmm. the Federation really does is just kind of wedge themselves between conflict, you know. Yeah. And, trying to figure that out mm-hmm. um but then you get these little things about the the workings of the technology the ships you know mm-hmm. the william sphere uh, yeah. all those things and so I, that's why i really do think it's a more digestible sci-fi mm-hmm. for people you know especially if you've never watched star trek mm-hmm. you know this this takes a lot of the best parts of those shows and makes it easier to experience without having the knowledge mm-hmm of like a hundred episodes, you know, of next generation, for example, (laughs) precisely. And the whole idea that like, basically you could have this group of aliens who have more advanced technology and could look at the show and base working technology off of what they saw is again, at the heart of science fiction, because good science fiction tries to explain the technology within it to a fault, obviously, because you'll get to the point where like, you just like, we don't fully understand what we want to do here yet. So we'll just say it's a positronic brain and he can basically think like a human, even though they don't describe exactly how a positronic brain could necessarily, you know, work as well as a real brain. But like the idea like warp, warp has more sophistication to it than hyperdrive. Yeah. Um, hyperdrive is is plot driven. It takes a long time when you need the characters to talk, but you're across the galaxy in a half a second when you need them to be there. Whereas warp has a consistent time to it. It explains how you basically got negative energy working with like or negative matter working with real matter to actually bend and fold space around the ship because you've never thought of it as space as the thing that's moving. Um, it actually 
tries to take like these scientific principles and says if you could make it work this is how you could you should, how you could possibly do it as opposed to just space operating it up so it's it's that again that that idea that like this is what based off the science that we we could think of like this is how it would work so it actually worked for the aliens when they built it because they had the technology and the know-withal to actually put it together yeah and fortunately you and i have the know-withal to have seen this film fairly early because it has been out for good lord 23 years now oh uh, yeah time does fly yeah so if you do happen to dip your toe into galaxy quest we we highly recommend it just because of the the deep subject matter that's there yes and and honestly if you stick around and decide that you want to dig further into it mm -hmm. folks there is so much more here oh my god than just a comedy so much so. more and oh my god the references like there's not enough time for all of them but i have to give one more before we leave because it's probably my favorite one out of everything and that is the rock monster that they fight did you know that this was a star trek reference i i feel like i do just because of how many times i've seen mm -hmm. um how many times i've seen the movie and i didn't know if this was just a, a reference to some of the sets that they that they worked with back in like california mm -hmm. but no I, i'm not 100 no. sure on this one it was actually william shatner wanted nay demanded that's right. a rock that's right. monster right. they didn't have a budget up in final frontier yes. but they right. couldn't afford it so they had to cut it and it was out and so they put it in the movie and shatner himself said i'm jealous that they got to make a rock monster <laughs> i could just see him in the audience the first time just going my god they have the rock monster that i wanted <laughs> he does, fixes his hair yeah, of course. His shirt's magically off too because he he got into an altercation before the film. <laughs> yep, he he had to roll while holding his his, his box of popcorn. The popcorn flew everywhere. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, well, oh. folks, there you have it. That is our pseudo review slash appreciation of Galaxy Quest from 1999. If we missed anything you can think of, because we surely did, definitely yeah. tell us about it. We'd love to hear about your favorite moments from this film. And if you do decide to to pull back the curtain even more, we'd love to hear about you know other things maybe we had no clue of. Yeah. I'm sure it is absolutely out there. So until next time, folks, keep on dissecting.